Um, Jesus tells a parable today, and it's a metaphor for him. It's, a me- it's an identity metaphor. It's a, it's a parable that tells about Jesus and about some, some key things about him. He tells about this vineyard, and the vineyard, vineyard is being leased out to these um, tenant farmers. They're taking care of it, but of course, the owner uh, is still the owner. And so when the messengers come to get, collect some of the fruit at harvest time, um, and they're treated poorly, and then finally the, the, the son of the owner is sent, and is killed, then, then Jesus says, you know, what, something's got to happen to these tenant owners. And that's the parable that he's giving. And it tells us about his life. It tells, or it tells us something about Jesus and his identity. So, so there's really, let's look at it in terms of three headings. Let's look at how it tells us that Jesus comes with God's authority. And then it tells us about our response to that authority. And then it tells us about God's patience with our response. So the authority of Jesus the response that we have and the grace that God has or the patience that God has. So first of all, the, the authority. This is really a non-controversial point. It's quite clear. I'm sure most of you, I don't have to prove this to you, but this parable has to do with Jesus, tells us something about Jesus' authority. There's two things. It talks about a vineyard and then it talks about a stone. I don't know if you caught that after the parable. There's a quote, an Old Testament quote about a stone the builders rejected. So we have a vineyard and we have a stone. And these tell us, kind of give us this, this uh, Jesus has authority kind of concept. The vineyard analogy was a common one. It was known, and you can even look at ancient Old Testament scriptures, and you can see this analogy, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5. And so the vineyard, um, there's always the owner. Every time this vineyard analogy is used, God is always the owner of the vineyard. So this was familiar. This was a non-controversial point. But then within this, this particular version of this vineyard analogy, we have um, not just the messengers, who traditionally would be considered the prophets sent to the people of Israel, but we also have a son that is sent. And that's, um, it, that's just kind of an interesting piece of how Jesus tells this story of a vineyard, that there's a son. And this kind of creates in Jesus' context a sense of, well, who's the son? What is the son? Jesus has just been saying that he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's been predicting this and talking about this. He's been saying to his closest ones, and they don't know what he's talking about. They're, they're floored by this information that he says, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be beaten and arrested and killed by the, by the same people that are mad about this parable that he tells, by the chief priests and the rulers, uh, of the teachers of the law. So... That's kind of the milieu. Jesus has already been saying, I'm going to be killed. Then he says there's a son in this story, in this parable, there's a son that's sent and he's going to be killed. So we're getting a sense of where Jesus is going with this. Um, and then also the, le- the leaders who hear this story are the very ones who are, that Luke is telling us all about how they're getting more and more angry with Jesus and looking for a way to arrest and kill him, have him killed. So we know that that's a part of the story. It's quite clear as you're reading Luke who the son is. But either way, the son is one that's coming with God's authority, the owner's authority. And another way this comes out is with the reference to the stone that the builders rejected. Just at the time that Jesus was talking and teaching, we have record of other teachings by Jewish rabbis. And one of the uses of this, um, this verse, it's a verse from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected. It becomes a key Christian verse talking about Jesus. Well, at the time of Jesus, it wasn't talking, they weren't talking about Jesus. When they talk about this verse, they're talking about King David. And in, maybe you know the story of the crowning, or the, not the crowning, the anointing of David. 
right? So he's the youngest and smallest of seven. He's, he's the runt of the litter. He's out in the field. They don't even invite him when, when the Samuel says, we're going to anoint one of your sons, Jesse. And, and they, okay, great. He brings his six oldest sons and leaves um, David out. So David's rejected. He's not even included, but then he ends up the one being crowned. And, and not only that, but in the Jewish imagination of Jesus' day, King David is the pinnacle of of the people of Israel. He's the pinnacle of them having a blessed place in this world and having power and a place and um, a position before God. And Dave, so David was the most powerful king. He was, the, the, and he was also kind of um, spoken very well of in the midst of all these other kings that are not spoken well of. So when Jesus is talking about, you know, there's going to be a son, but there's also a stone that's going to be rejected, and, and you're getting a sense he's talking about himself, and they're thinking also uh, coming up in people's minds is David. And then there's also talk in those days of a Messiah. And one of the phrases and terms for a Messiah in that day was a son of David. You know, someone coming in the line of King David. So their imaginations are perked and it's all around authority. It's all around authority. Whoever this son is that's coming, and we know, Luke is telling us it's Jesus. Whoever this son is has major authority. It's like the owner's son coming, and he's the heir, and so he has ownership stake in this, and he's coming, and he's here. So when we think about Jesus, when these people who heard this parable think about Jesus, we think about Jesus as coming into your life with authority. And that's the first thing we, we just kind of lay that out. Secondly, and probably more important for us to consider now that we lay that kind of foundation is that the story is telling us something about our resistance to that authority. The universal default human response to the authority of Jesus coming into our lives is not, not a good one, not a positive one. We read an example of that in this very story. On my page on the chapter we were looking at before the service. So in verse 7, no, I'm sorry, verse 19, right at the end, it says, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they go right out and they do exactly what the parable said they were going to do. In some ways, if you're one of them, you might be a little clever and try to show Jesus, we're not going to do that. You know, we know you're talking about us. Uh, we're going to like you. You know, I, I mean, you might think they were a little duplicitous and they, they try to not, fought, you know, not let Jesus win and be right, but instead they, they just can't help themselves. They're, and that's an example really of us. They're, they're invited to look at their blind spots and they resist it to the point of violence. That's so, I mean, that's not, I'm sorry, but you might think of a, a news headline, but it's also in our own hearts. It's also right there in our own behavior with others. There's another place in the Bible. I mean, it feels sometimes like that's the default response of humans and that it's almost the only inevitable response, but there's another place in the Bible that the story takes our imaginations where we see that it's the defensiveness and violence and pushing away the person speaking into your life is not the only option that you have. And that's with David. Again, going back to David. There was, this was another time where someone came, a prophet came with a parable. And when the prophet Nathan came to David with a parable to expose what was going on in David's life, unbelievably, lo and behold, against all odds, this person with all kinds of human power 
actually listens. And actually, when his, his waywardness is exposed, and it's the story of David and Bathsheba and killing Bathsheba's husband on the battlefields and all the cover-ups and adultery, when it's exposed, David actually humbles himself. He goes into a place of deep spiritual sorrow and sadness. He gets the gravity of the fact that he has, he has treated the world like it's his own personal vineyard to pluck the fruit, and yet it's, it's, he's actually accountable to this God who owns the vineyard. It's astonishing, his response. He could have done all the things that you and I do. He could have compared himself to the other kings and said, oh, Nathan, you, you should see what the king over there in Persia is doing with women. I mean, I, I just give me one little morsel. I mean, c- compared to what they're doing over there, he could have turned it around and said, oh, Nathan, I'm sure you think you're perfect. You know, that's another thing we like to do, right? He could have used humor. He could have cracked a joke and tried to just lighten the mood and kind of slurk out of the responsibility with a joke. Um, you know, or he could have just used the biology argument, right? You know, hey, men will be men. Um, a little bit of hormones here and there. It's just kind of, it's going to happen, you know, especially when you're as likable of a guy as I am. Could have used any of these things, and he doesn't. Miraculously, it seems. His heart is soft. And he gives us a stunning example of allowing God's authority in. And that's abnormal. That's unusual. It's a great model for us. But it's it's difficult, incredibly difficult, to embody that yourself. In our story, maybe some of why it's so difficult is that this parable brings our minds and our biblical imaginations to another place a similar kind of dynamic. Another place, it's not a vineyard, but it's a similar, it's a garden, when a couple of people were told that some of the fruit was not going to be just for them. And since that time, since Adam and Eve first thought that maybe that fruit should belong to them, our, our hearts have been doing the same thing ever since. It's trying as hard as we can to keep God from having this place of being owner and getting as far away from that kind of sense with God in our life as we can. And, and if anything, we're willing to have God be a sort of consultant, right? Sort of a consultant, but really the idea is, you know, we pick and we choose, right? And that's a lot easier. That's a lot more convenient. Pick and choose the things you like. And it all kind of goes, filters through the fact that you're really the owner. And that's how you've set up your life. It's one of, those, one of those passages that's tough to hear. Um, it causes us all to check ourselves. There's a quote that I read by somebody reflecting on this passage this week, and he says this. It's also in your worship guide if you want to read, read through it again later. It says, we, we all want to set up our own republic of heaven, our kingdom of man, just as humans have always done since Adam and Eve. If we covet his authority, if we want to be God in our own little vineyard, then eventually, inevitably, unstoppably, we will end up having to kill God. There can be only one God. This is not just something that you feel in your hearts. It's something you see all over the place, all around you. It's influencing us from the outside as well. It's all... It's a very cultural thing that we experience. Um, 
You know, that's a great question, Vincent, but can I talk to you about that afterwards? Can we discuss that? Yeah. I want to make sure I do justice to what you're asking. Okay. I was going to say about how in our culture right now, there's a lot of this vibe of my vineyard. Think about it like this. Three categories. They're all, all three of them are uncomfortable. The last one will be the most uncomfortable. We say my body. It's my body. I do what I want with my body. So whether we're talking about plastic surgery or terminating a pregnancy or marijuana or alcohol, we say it's my body. It's mine. It's my vineyard. Okay, so that's one. How about my romantic life? Hey, this is none of your business. This is my romantic life. This is my sexual involvement, regardless of whether there's a marriage covenant there or not. It's, it's my terrain. Um, hey, regardless of whether the people who love me most in my life are saying things about how healthy or unhealthy this relationship might be, this is my terrain. This is my terrain. This is my romantic life. You know, I've got that little thing that I do by myself with a computer, with pictures, and whether that's an addiction or not, it's my terrain. It's what I do. Now, the last one's the most difficult. You guess what it is? The last terrain? Josiah goes like this. Money, right? Right? Why is that one the hardest? But it is. We talked about it with Zacchaeus this morning in the back. The Bible gives this this really beautiful baseline default picture of a person who has, or a household that has spiritual balance, that stuff and material goods and money has not got your heart in a, in a vice grip. And that kind of person or household, in the Bible, the sort of baseline picture is giving away 10% off the top of what you have as just a symbol of the fact that the other 90 is not even yours in the first place. So that, you know, that's easy because all of it's God's. All of it's given from God and to be used by God and for God's purposes. So wow, is that unpopular to talk about? How are you doing on that? And I mean, don't even get going deeper into this. The other layers because it gets beyond 10%. We saw Zacchaeus in the back as we talked about his story this morning. 50%. You know, someone who's just joyous, is completely unlocked from the power of wealth after living a life oriented all around it. 50%. But it's rare. All of this talk, it's rare to do business with someone asking you to consider that you are not the owner of your vineyard. This is very unpopular and very rare to talk about. And yet we need, because I think because of that, we need each other. We need others in this. We need to discuss and talk and be together. You need people in your life, not to be the police or the tattletales on you, but as loving, gentle, forgiving encouragers. Loving, gentle, forgiving encouragers. Do you have some of that? Do you have that in your life? Christians, against all odds, for centuries have been developing this in little hidden pockets all over the place, even here a little bit, I think, at City Life, where you actually, um, it actually becomes kind of normal to fondly talk about something you might have heard, the lordship of Christ. That's a phrase in Christian communities and in scripture, lordship. Whoa, what does that mean? That means God's the owner. And in Christian community, that becomes almost like a fond, heartwarming concept. If you haven't experienced it yet, 
maybe your curiosity will, will pull you deeper into community with others who are. There's another fond phrase that it sounds terrible, but it develops a sort of fondness in the context of Christian community. Dying to self. Sounds horrifying. Sounds utterly... But it becomes this fond thing because the relationship with this owner, this is a different kind of owner. And those who have begun to meet this loving, gracious, forgiving owner begin to exhibit that and show that to each other. And so we'd like to think, you know, we like to go on in life thinking that we're the captains of our battleship and we're turning and steering the ship. These impressive ships that we're driving around. But really, it's more like we're just, we're passengers on our icebergs. We think we're steering this thing, but why do we keep crashing and having all these problems? And we need the help. We need each other to help explore because it's dark and cold and difficult to jump down and explore and begin to peer down into the great abyss of what we haven't even looked at, but it's actually the stuff that's moving our life in directions that surprise us. But we need each other. We need loving models. We need mentors. We need guides who show us the way of weakness, the way that David in that passage was willing to hear from others. We need Christ's authority to thrive, but unless you're close to others, unless you have close Christian friendships, you're probably not getting Christ's authority in your life very much. Because how else is it going to get there, get talked about? It's probably not happening on a regular basis. And third, let's look at this. So there's, we talked about Jesus' authority, our response. That's the most painful part of the message, of course. And then there's God's patience. God's patience. Um, there's another place in the Bible that our minds go when we see the phrase in this passage where it says that he sent his, he says, I sent, send my son whom I love. There's another place where that phrase was said, and it was said when God spoke to Abraham, he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac was going to be the heir. And they, Abraham had waited a long time. And yet when Abraham brought Isaac up on a mountain to do this thing that seems absolutely horrid, sacrifice his son Isaac. And when God stops him and pro provides a, a ram, instead because ultimately that image wasn't going to be played out by one of us it was going to be played out by God himself when he enters in and his own only son is the one who is offered up, up on our behalf and this story is telling us about God's patience when you when you when you realize that he's so patient after all these times of sending messengers and yet he still sends his own son, it's almost shocking because you know what's going to happen. I mean, did anybody, was anybody surprised? I mean, you, no, don't send your son. What are you, crazy? There's something where it seems like this vineyard owner is a little bit bonkers, a little bit off. That he would go to these extremes to give this sort of second chance. But that's our God. And that's the story. That's part of what's coming through in this parable loud and clear. Somebody once put it this way, this parable's purpose is to illustrate God's incomprehensible concern for man, the lengths God will go to keep on his track and maintain contact with him despite his stubbornness and his blind delusion. Of course, it's an older quote, so it's got this 
his, him, gender thing, but it's just saying mankind. The incomparable concern God has for us and the lengths he'll go despite our stubbornness and our blind delusion. I know it's tempting to remain skeptical of Jesus' authority and to kind of have this attitude like, hey, I'm no sucker. God's not going to get me. You know, he's not going to get his hands on my money. He's not going to keep me from having any fun. I know how this works. He's not going to turn me into a religious robot, you know, talking all that churchy talk all the time. I mean, we got all those defenses. We put our defenses up, but if you listen to this parable, the only conclusion you can get about God's position towards us, God's behavior towards us, is that he has already risked even more than he'll ever ask of you. And he's laid it out on the line. He's paved the road of his authority with his own tears, his own suffering, his own death. And it's this patient love that Jesus is still offering in this story. I don't know if you noticed this, but he's still offering this patient love to the most hostile hypocrites of his day. That's, that's the extremes of this God. So I'm pretty sure that it's safe to say that that God is still today looking at you sitting in your chair. I don't know how much of a hostile hypocrite you are, but it doesn't really matter. Just a little bit, yeah? A little bit. Me too. And I can be assured that God's patient, patiently putting out this patient love before all of us. So what should be driven home here is not how restricting Jesus is, but how lenient God is towards those who initially resist. The grace, of, the grace of the Christian story, the grace of all of Jesus' life and all the stories he tells, it's a gift. And it's like a gift. The gift of Jesus is at your doorstep. And it's sitting there. And yet it's still a gift. It still needs to be opened. God gives us the agency to resist and to decide not to open up what's been laid out before us. And so, all the hard work has been done. The gift has been set at your doorstep, ready for you to grab it and receive it and open it up. And any amount of keeping the door shut, we might try to find a, a sort of a route, I think this is culturally where we're at often, is sort of an, a, a, mode, a gray area of indecision. You know, where, yeah, we yeah, got the package, we got the, it's on the doorstep, have you opened it? No, no. I haven't opened it. I mean, I have it, though. I have it. And that's sort of, I think, our posture often spiritually today. But any, it's like resistance 2.0. It's like our new version of still actually never opening the gift and entering in. We're, in some ways, deep in our heart, we still remain that the bo- it's a box full of poison. <laughs> and so we go to the end treating it that way. I'll just close with this. So one, of, one of my favorite older writers, um, George MacDonald, he writes a lot of fantasy and so forth, but he also has some great quotes about the Gospels and about the Bible. He says, Either sometime in this life you say, God, thy will be done, I am not, your, I am not my own, or else at the end of time Jesus will look at you and say, All right, thy will be done. You are your own pray. Our God of grace, you are so patient. 
And so we look to that patience and our hearts are invited and stirred to love you in return. Despite all of our um, failed devotion, all of our missteps and defensiveness, we pray that we may find delight in you because you have delighted in us. pray in Jesus' name. We respond to hearing God's word through offering prayers on behalf of our church and the world. The communal response is, Lord, hear our prayer, and you will also be invited.